Father, we love you, Lord. We praise your holy name. We thank you that we can worship you in spirit and in truth, that we can gather together freely and honor you and glorify you and praise you and worship you. And the worship continues as we get into your word right now. We pray that you would humble our hearts, that you would increase, that we would decrease, Lord, that we would just bow down before you in awe, trembling, Lord, at your beauty, at your mercy, at your grace, at your loving kindness and what you did for us at the cross. Help us, Lord, to try to wrap our brains around the love that you have for us. I pray that you would edify us today, that you would build us up, that you would strengthen our faith in you, that you would help us, Lord, to be salt and light in this world, that you would help us to go out, to go out into this world and be like Christ to those who don't know you. So be with us right now. Bless this message in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of today's teaching is Victorious Suffering. Victorious Suffering. I want to begin where I left off two weeks ago. It feels like a month ago. And you could ask Leah not teaching two weeks ago. I was like going stir crazy at home. I was like, there's got to be a way we can get to the church. Like there's, we have to find a way. And I was like pacing around the house because when you put together a message it, at least for me, it, it's like burning on your heart. It's, you just, you want to share it with someone. And to not be able to do that, I almost just went into the garage and just preached the message and just said, okay, I got it off of me now, on with my day. And so I just went outside and I prayed and I was singing and shoveling snow for the next couple hours, it seemed like. You know, I shoveled all my snow in the, in the driveway and then I realized all the snow that was on my car and then I saw the neighbors, because I'm still learning how all this works. And I saw the neighbors then getting all the snow off of their cars. And I was like, well, I already shoveled the driveway. And so then I had to do it all over again. And so, okay, I learned that lesson. I'll get the hang of it at some point or another. So praise God, we made it today. I left off at Romans 8:37. I haven't been able to get this passage out of my mind for a while. I, I can't get out of Romans chapter 8. So that's where we're going to start and that's where, Lord willing, we're going to end today is Romans chapter 8. And we're looking at verse 37 and then we're going to kind of springboard from there. We're going to do a little off-roading for a little bit and then we're going to come back to Romans 8. Romans eight thirty-seven. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We overwhelmingly conquer. I mentioned last time that that's one Greek word. Those two English words, more than conquerors, in some of your translations, overwhelmingly conquer, hooper, nikao. Nikao is used 30, 28 times in the New Testament. Nikao means to conquer, to have victory, to overcome. And when you put that word hooper in front of it, which it's used once in the New Testament, hooper nikao, overwhelmingly, exceedingly, abundantly. We are completely and overwhelmingly victorious through Jesus Christ and his cross. But what makes this passage difficult to understand is what comes right before verse 37. Look at verse 36. We don't have to be a math major to know this. Go back one verse. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. We're being slaughtered 
Paul's saying. We're being put to death, yet we overwhelmingly conquer. Isn't that a paradox? Isn't that an apparent contradiction? How is that a reality? How is it a truth? We're conquered, but we conquer. We're slaughtered, but we're victorious. Well, the paradox continues if you go back a verse before, verse 35. Tribulation, he mentions. Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Are these terms that describe someone who's victorious? When you think of a conqueror, when you think of Alexander the Great or someone who conquered the world, these typically aren't the terms that you associate with someone who's victorious. You maybe think more of strong or mighty or powerful or dominating, successful, fortunate, plenty, abundance, ease, prosperity, not tribulation, not nakedness, not famine, not peril, not the sword, definitely not being slaughtered. The crucifixion of the Son of God, Christ being slaughtered on the cross, the tribulation, the distress, the persecution, the famine, the nakedness, the peril, the sword that he endured, the spear being thrust into his side, the, the clothes that were ripped off of his back as they're throwing dice and playing, messing around for his clothes as he's in agony naked on the cross, nails driven in his hands, the mocking, the ridicule, the taunting, Jesus even said on the cross in John 19:28, I am thirsty, famine, hunger. All these things described in verse 35 and verse 36 can be found in Jesus Christ in what he endured. And to the world, what happened to Christ seemed to be a defeat. They were victorious, so they thought over Jesus. This was the first time in his ministry that the religious leaders finally felt like they got the upper hand. Read through the Gospels. How many times did Jesus turn things around on the religious leaders? How many times did they try to grasp him? Did they try to throw stones at him? Did they try to seize him and kill him? And he was able to slip away over and over again. But now they think, now we have defeated him. Now we have our victory over Jesus. Their envy, their anger, their jealousy found its culmination at the cross. And there they are wagging their heads, wagging their fingers, mocking him, saying, go ahead and come down from that cross. They were proclaiming defeat over Jesus. But they don't have the final word. Three days later, as they're shaking their hands and they're celebrating And rejoicing their supposed win, there was a tomb outside of the city. I don't know, maybe maybe you've heard the story. I don't know. Anyone heard the story? There was a power. There was an intensity. The scripture says there was a severe earthquake, so much that these rough Roman soldiers were laying down like dead men, shaking in fear because of the power and the intensity of, that came upon that tomb. Of course, Jesus conquered the grave. He defeated the world. He crushed Satan, and he proclaimed victory over the power 
of sin. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Death couldn't hold him. The grave could not keep him. Satan, the world, and the religious leaders could not hold him back from accomplishing his father's will. Christ Christ has and always will have the final word. And it's this, victory. It's the final word in his life, over his life, over the grave, and it's the final word over your life if you are a Christian. Victory, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven. But thanks be to God who always gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The key words are through Jesus, through him. Verse 37 of Romans 8, through him. You can't conquer anything on your own. You can't have any victory on your own. You're not an overcomer on your own. You're an overcomer because he overcame. You overcome through him, through his power, through his strength. That's true triumph. So now what does that mean? Does that mean life's going to be easy? Life's going to be health, wealth, and prosperity because he's victorious and we're victorious. So the battle's over. That's it. We just sit back, enjoy the ride. Is that the Christian life? Some people say it is. Just turn on TBN and don't turn it on. But if you were to turn on Christian cable, that's what you're going to hear. You're awesome. Life's easy. Sit back, health, wealth, and prosperity. And if you don't have it, it's because you're not giving enough money or you're not praying enough or you don't have enough faith. That's not what Scripture teaches, of course. First Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial or ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. We're in the testing phase. We're in the trial. Do you love Jesus or not? Do you love your possessions more than you love Jesus? Do you love your life more than you love Jesus? Are you seeking security and safety and comfort above all, or are you seeking Jesus? You're being tested right now, Peter's saying. You're going through fiery trials, and don't be surprised. It's not something strange. This is part of the course of being a Christian. Fiery trials are not strange They're normal. Think of a boxer. Is getting punched in the mouth a strange thing to a boxer in a fight? Does he go in there and, why is this guy punching me? I don't understand. Can someone tell him to stop? You look at an athlete, a football player. Why are people trying to tackle me? Why is the other team trying to hurt me? Why am I going through so much pain? Why does my body hurt? I didn't sign up for this. I'm in a battle. Why am I getting shot at? Uh, why is the other army shooting at me? Why is, I don't understand this. Boxing, racing, being a bat in a battle, these are all illustrations used in the New Testament of believers. Paul tells Timothy, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Just read First and Second Timothy. Both letters are endure, Timothy. Timothy, if we deny him, he's going to deny us. Keep the faith, Timothy. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life, Timothy. Don't throw in the towel. It's hard, I know. 
I'm passing the baton on to you. Look at my life. Look at my persecutions, Timothy. Look at my suffering. And I've endured it all. You do the same thing. And that's what the scripture is telling us today. You will suffer. Jesus said in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome. Nikao, there it is again. I have victory over the world. That's our victory in the midst of the suffering. Yes, we will struggle. Yes, we will weep. Yes, we will cry. Yes, we will say at times in our walk, why, Lord, I don't understand this. Weeping will stay for the night. Joy will come in the morning. That's a great promise. Walking the Calvary road in the footsteps of Jesus Christ includes and comes along with it weakness and pain and suffering and exhaustion to the point where we have nothing left in us to where we throw ourselves on Jesus, to where we have nowhere else to look but up towards him, to where our weakness is almost paralyzing to the point where it drives us to call to the only one who can help us, and that's Jesus Christ, the only one who can save. That's true strength. That's true power. That's Second Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. His power is perfected in weakness. Paul says, Lord, take this thorn from my flesh. It's agonizing me. I'm in pain. God says, no, it's going to stay. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. You need to stay weak, Paul. That's the only way you're going to get true strength. It's there to keep you humble. If you didn't have it, you'd exalt yourself. You'd get all the praise. You'd get all the glory. No, I'm going to get the glory, Paul. And this will keep you on your knees so that you will give me glory. And verse 10 goes on to say, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul says, I'm well content with weaknesses and insults, with persecutions, with difficulties, for sufferings, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. It's hard to grasp that in America. We try to accumulate so many things, the money, the, the possessions, which aren't bad in and of themselves, but that we can start depending on the securities and the comforts and the things of this world. And so we don't realize we're weak when we are weak. And we put a band-aid on our problem with something else other than crying out to God for help and other than looking to him as we should. That's where true strength comes from. When you read the end of Isaiah 52 into Isaiah 53, in most of your Bibles right at the beginning of Isaiah 53, it says the suffering servant. How is Jesus referred to? The suffering servant. He suffered, marred more than any man, despised and forsaken, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastened, scourged, oppressed, afflicted, slaughtered. We see it again there in Isaiah 53 and Romans 8. Slaughtered, cut off from the land of the living. He poured out himself to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. That's all throughout Isaiah 53. Many Christians want the power. They want the blessing. They want the prosperity that comes along with, with being a Christian. But when it comes to the suffering, 
No, that's Jesus. That's not, that's not part of my life. But that's the summary of the Calvary Road. That's the summary of the cross. The question for us is, are we running towards that or are we running away from that? Are we moving towards the cross or away? Are we pursuing above all in our lives ease, comfort, security, and safety? Or are we running back to the bunker when the fight's right in front of us? And God's saying, fight on the front lines. And we're saying, but Lord, I want comfort. I want ease. I want Christ, but I don't want the suffering. I want to get close to Jesus, but I want to run away from the difficulties that he went through. Isn't that what we all want deep down in our flesh? We want the power. We want the strength. We want Jesus. We want more of him. But keep the suffering with him. I don't want that part of the pack, the deal. But it's a package deal. It all comes together. And we need to embrace it. And we need to do it with joy. We want to be like Simon of Cyrene who carried Jesus' cross not like Simon Peter who was following at a distance, who was retreating, who ultimately denied Christ. We don't want to be like the disciples who were all locked in that house, it says in the book of John, for the fear of the Jews, while the women and the apostle John were at the cross ministering to Jesus, not fearing the Jews. That's how we want to be as Christians. Listen to Paul in Philippians 2 10 and 11. Actually, you can turn there and join me if you'd like. Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. He says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I want to know his power. Philippians 3.10, sorry. Did I say 2.10? You're reading something else over here. That in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And that's a good one too. Probably preach on that too right now. Philippians 3.10 and 11. NIV says, I want to know him. NASB, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings. Fellowship, koinonia. What do you think of when you think of fellowship? Oh, I'm going to go fellowship with the ladies. Oh, me and the guys are going to get together. We're going to go fellowship, a home fellowship. We're going to eat together and praise and worship and we're going to sing and we're going to be filled with joy and peace. But do you think of the fellowship of his sufferings? When, so Paul says, I want to know him Gnosko, experiential knowledge. I want intimate knowledge with Jesus, and I want it all. I want the whole package. I want to know his sufferings. I want to be conformed to his death. I'm going after this with everything. That's what Paul's saying. Every part of my being, I press on towards the goal, verse 14. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's not messing around. He's given everything to Jesus. This chapter, he talks about how he gave everything as a Pharisee. He lists his credentials in the first six six verses. As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church, circumcised the eighth day, verse 5. 
of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal of persecute of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. I, he's like, I checked all the boxes. I knew the Old Testament like the back of my hand. If you want to know if I was zealous or not, I was hunting down Christians, bringing them back to Jerusalem and having them persecuted and killed. I was doing everything for my Jewish faith. I was doing everything for the, my false faith. And now that I'm a Christian, he says, there is a surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Verse eight, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You suffer for something you value. Why do people do MMA, boxing? Why do people play football? Why do they embrace the suffering? And as Christians, we can't embrace suffering. They're willing to get their mouths punched. They're willing to get tackled and break their legs. They're willing. Firemen are willing to run into buildings and to burning flames for people. Police officers are willing to take bullets flying at them. You go in the military, you're putting your life on the line. Why do people suffer for these things? Because they honor it. They value it. The accolades, the honor, the respect, perhaps the money. There's something involved that they value, so they'll suffer. If you don't value Christ, you won't be willing to suffer for him. We really have to let this sink in. I've been pondering on this for the last 24 hours deeply. Why, don't, why am I willing to suffer so much for this, that, and the other, but I'm not willing to suffer for Christ? And I think it's like Paul says, I, in view of the surpassing value of knowing him. He says, I value knowing Jesus more than anything else in the universe. So bring on the struggles, bring on the trials, bring on the weakness, bring on the pain. I want to know him. That's what you want to be able to say as a Christian. You want to be able to echo these words. Say, I want to take my faith to a whole nother level. I want to know Jesus in a way I've never known him before. Because with the suffering and with the pain become, comes an inexpressible joy. A peace that surpasses all understanding that will guard your heart and mind in Christ. A blessing that you've never known. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will what? Be satisfied. Matthew 5, 6. You will be satisfied when you hunger and thirst to be more like Christ. You don't want to focus on the suffering, focus on the trials. You just need to know that that's going to come with it and be armed and ready for it. I think Paul's saying, like someone in the military that signs up and says, I'm going for the Medal of Honor. I'm going for the Purple Heart. I'm, I'm going for it all. Whatever comes with this, I'm going for it. I met a guy recently. He was a, I forget his title, Major Sergeant General. He said he had one of the highest titles in the Army. He had a picture on the wall, and his whole uniform was covered. He had all the, he goes, these represent, I think, four years. He was in the military, 40 years. And he goes, they ran out of room. His whole arm was covered. He had all these medallions, all these different things. And I can't help but think that's like the Apostle Paul for Christ. He wore it as a badge of honor. If 
the Apostle Paul was to put on one of those suits, coats, whatever they call them in the military, he would not have room on it for all the decorations and awards he got for Jesus Christ. And see, as Christians, we don't get all the accolades from the world. How many of us that would sign up for the military would love to have a Purple Heart bumper sticker or license plate and drive around with that? That would be pretty cool, I admit. Or a Medal of Honor. To have your name on that list, that would be pretty cool. But as a Christian, you suffer for Christ and the world just thinks you're, like Paul says, the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. You're nothing in the world's eyes. You don't get the coat. You don't get the bumper sticker. You don't get your name, but your name is written in heaven. You have the King of kings and the Lord of lords that says, that's my child. And so Paul says, I'm running the race for the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will reward to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. That's what he was running for. Not the accolades of man, the accolades of God. That's where our minds need to be. Back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I call it the grand finale. The grand finale at the end of Romans chapter 8. But before the grand finale at the end of Romans 8, we see the backdrop of suffering towards the beginning of Romans chapter 8. I was thinking as I was putting this together, we don't go to a fireworks show during the day. I actually typed that in online and I saw in Italy they were doing a fireworks show during the day and it, was, it looked really weird. It's just all these different colors in the sky, but you couldn't really make anything out. And when you, do, when you see an amazing fireworks show and a grand finale with a backdrop of darkness, it looks that much brighter. And in Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians and elsewhere, Paul's saying at the backdrop of eternity, when you're looking at the suffering now, the glory is going to shine all the more brighter for all eternity, the backdrop of suffering that precedes it. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 through 18. Romans eight sixteen through 18. Paul says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if Underline that word if. If indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He calls it light. Read 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 and read all that Paul went through. I wouldn't consider that light. Being stoned and left for dead, whipped times without number, dangers from robbers, dangers from his countrymen, dangers from rivers, many sleepless nights, If that's not enough, he says, I'm agonizing over the churches. I'm agonizing over those who are living in sin. He goes, my whole life, I'm in agony. These are light afflictions compared to eternity. There's a Greek word in verse 18 I want to hone in on for a moment. 
and it's the English word sufferings, and it's the Greek word pathema. Pathema, it means suffering, affliction. It's the capacity to feel strong emotion, pain, agony, or passion. You know the movie Passion of the Christ? Why is it? How is passion associated with pain and agony? And it's actually because it comes from the Latin word for suffering. That's why you might hear that word passion. I want to look at where this Greek word's used in just a couple other places. Second Corinthians one five. For just as the pathema, just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. This word pathema is used in Philippians 3.10 where we just were, where Paul says, I want to know the fellowship of his pathema. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. It's also used in 1 Peter 4.13 when Paul says, but or when Peter says, to the degree that you share the pathema, to the degree you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. How much sweeter is that day going to be when you see Jesus face to face, realizing all he suffered and endured for you and I, and when you remember all that you've suffered and endured for him? Now, what's fascinating about this Greek word, pathema, it's where we get the English word path. Have you ever heard of pathology? It's the study of disease, the study of illness. When you think of path, suffering, where we get the English word path, we are on the path of Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Christians in Acts 9, verse 2 and elsewhere were called followers of the path, actually followers of the way. That word's also translated as path in the New Testament. What path are you on? Are you on the path of suffering? Are, are you on the narrow road? Narrow is the gate and hard is the way that leads to life. Few are those who find it. Or broad and spacious and easy is the way that leads to destruction. Many go that way. Jesus invites us to the narrow way. It's the pilgrim's progress the slough of, des- of despair, the hill of difficulty, the valley of humiliation, the constant combats with Apollyon, the delectable mountains, all culminating in the celestial city. That's the path, if you're a Christian, that you're on. So in, Roman, in Romans 8.18, for I consider the path, you could say, of the present time, it's not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So we got to get our eyes on Christ and off the path. If you're so focused on the path, if you're looking down at the path, you're not looking to heaven. You're not looking to the glory. You're getting distracted. You're stumbling. You're falling over. You're too focused on the here and now. So Paul says, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Don't set your mind on the things of this world. Yes, we're in this world. Jesus said, I'm not of this world. We need to lift up our eyes to heaven. And so isn't that the heart of the Christian battle, getting our eyes off of our fixation on the suffering and the hardships and the pain of right now and onto the glory that will follow? We need to get our eyes on Christ, on 
the inheritance. How many times throughout the New Testament are the New Testament writers pointing to the inheritance that's reserved for us, the inheritance in heaven, that Christ is seated in heaven, that God wants to bless us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. They're constantly trying to pull us back to that rather than off the here and the now and the fixation that we can have on this. And I believe that's what Paul's trying to do in Romans 8. He's moving from the suffering to the glory. He's moving to the end, to the grand finale. He, he's seeing that at times in our Christian walk, we're stuck in the thickets of the forest and he wants us to fly above and to see the bigger picture because we can't see what's in front of us when we're all stuck in the bushes, so to speak, and we need to go above. And so he says in Romans eight twenty eight. We know that God causes all things. Maybe you've heard this verse before. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. He's working it all for good. We want to say like David in Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have asked One thing I seek of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Listen to the Shane and Shane song on that if you haven't heard it. It's a beautiful song. That's where we need to be meditating. That's where we need to be dwelling, in heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne. Now in Romans 8, Paul talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that the Trinity is at work in your life. If you are a Christian, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is doing something in you. And Paul poses seven questions that, with the time remaining, I just want to walk through pretty quickly. Seven questions at the end of Romans 8, and I believe his intent is to bring us to our knees in worship, in adoration, and to be in awe of God and what he's doing in our lives. Number one is verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? He's asking some rhetorical questions here. I think he's saying you should be such in such awe of what God is doing in your life that like a person who receives an accolade or award, some prestigious award, maybe you've seen that and they say, I'm speechless. I don't know what to say. I think that's what Paul's saying here. If you can wrap your brains around verses 26 through 30, what, what shall we say to these things? How, you, should be, you should be struggling for words to grasp, to praise God, to worship him. And so in verses 26 and 27, he talks about, let's just read it, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He's not just throwing up flare prayers as we call them, easy prayers. Just No, he's groaning with, these, with this passionate intercession for the saints. That's what the Holy Spirit does for you. When you're weak, when you're frail, the Holy Spirit is pleading your case. He's praying God's will over your life. That's what verse 27 says, for the saints according to the will of God. Then he goes into verse 28, all things work together for the good. Then he goes into verse 29, that God's foreknown you. 
and the everlasting mind of God, he's known you from all eternity. And he's conforming you. He's predestined you to be like Jesus Christ. If you love God, if you are in Christ, this is what God is doing in you. He's making you more like Jesus so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. And then in verse 30, he talks about those he predestined, he called, and whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, he glorified. If you're in Christ, it's as if it's a done deal. These are in the past tense. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. You don't have to worry about Satan snatching you from the Father's hand. You don't have to worry about someone being able to overpower your faith. If you are in Christ, you are secure. These are promises that should grow your faith and secure you in your love for God and remind you of his love for you. So I believe Paul's shouting from the rooftop, are you seeing it yet? Are you grasping this yet? Do you understand what God is doing in your life, that the God of the universe is on your side? So what shall we say to these things? And then number two, the end of verse 31, if God is for us, who is against us? Well, you say, well, the whole world's against me. Okay. Well, the principalities and the powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world are against me. The whole universe is against me. Well, if that's the case, it's like tissue paper to a raging fire. It's like a drop of water compared to the ocean. It's like a potato bug raising his fist at a lion. That's God compared to everything else on the other side in the universe. Here's God. Here's everything else in the rest of the universe. Paul's saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? Compared to his might and his power and his strength and his infinite being, if he is for you, who can be against you? Paul's saying, wrap your brains around this. Do you understand how big God is? Worship him. Be in awe of him. Understand this. And you say, well, I don't know. I still don't, under, I, I still don't believe it. Then he goes to verse 32. Let me prove it to you. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. You doubt God's love. You doubt God's power. You doubt if God's for you. Look at the cross. Look at what God did for you in Christ. Look at the wrath that was poured out on Jesus and not on you. You want to know his love? You want to know if he's for you? Look at those nail-scarred hands. Look at that blood-beaten brow. And look at the final words that Jesus said, to tell us I paid in full. It is finished. That's how much God loves you. I was ministering to someone this week, and they said, I was told from the time I was a little child, you're a mistake. I didn't want to have you. You're not worthy of anything. I don't want you. You're nothing. Those are words from the enemy. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. You got to throw those words right back at the enemy. And you need to remember, if God is for you, who can be against you? What matters is what God says about you and I, not what anyone in this world says about you and I. God says the whole universe is mine, Psalm 50, verse 12, which leads me to question number three at the end of verse 32. How will he not 
also with him. Freely give us all things. There's a progression going on here. Moving from, what shall we say, to God's for us. And if God's for us, isn't he going to give us everything? If God can do the hardest thing and give you his son, can't he give you everything else? Scripture teaches God has given us everything pertaining to life and to godliness. And for all eternity, he's going to give you all the blessings and all things that are included in the inheritance of Jesus Christ. Remember in Matthew 7, 9 through 11, Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, doesn't your heavenly father know how to give good gifts? Which of you, if he asks for a a loaf of bread, your father is going to throw him a stone? If you ask your father for a fish, is he going to throw a snake at you? How much more does your heavenly father give good gifts to his children? That's where faith kicks in. That's where trust kicks in. That's where throw up our hands and say, I don't quite grasp eternity. I don't quite grasp everything that I can't see. I see all the things around me. I see all the possessions that I can have or the things that can be good but can also turn into a bad thing if they become idols in my life. I have all these tangible things, but I don't see you, Jesus, right now, and I don't see heaven. And the Lord's saying, trust me. I'll freely give you all things. I love how David puts it in Psalm 16, 5 and 6. He says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. He says, You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He goes on to close the chapter out by saying, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, There are pleasures forevermore. See, when you're setting your mind on things above, that's included in it. The fullness of joy that's in the Father's presence. The pleasures that are at his right hand. Not being like a chubby angel sitting on a cloud playing a harp for eternity. Full joy, pleasures forevermore. You go, what does that include exactly? I want to know all the details right now. Write some book about heaven and tell me. I don't have all the details. Read the book of Revelation. Read through the scriptures. Streets of gold. Tree of life. All these amazing fruit. But the prize and the portion, what David says, is God. And to enjoy him forever. That's where we really need to set our hearts. Number four and five. Verse 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Every charge and every accusation against a child of God is obliterated at the foot of the cross. Can anyone throw an accusation your way? Yep. Can anyone throw a charge your way and it sticks? In one sense, yeah. If you were to get the book of your life, if you were to stack all the papers up, of the story of your life and everything you have done, what would be said on the top of all that stack of papers for you and me is guilty. We could look through that and we could pull up dirty laundry on everyone in this room and everyone in different churches around the world and every single person on this planet for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the bad news, guilty. And if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, 
And if the gospel's not true and the Bible's not true, then that's the only story you and I have over our lives. That's the only story that everyone out there has over their lives. Guilt, shame, despair, and no hope of eternity. But because Christ is victorious and because Christ rose from the grave, he comes over and he stamps on that stack of papers, forgiven, cleansed, loved, righteous. He obliterates the stack of paper. He burns it. He shreds it. It's gone. That's the hope of the gospel. So now, after putting your faith and trust in Christ, any accusation that comes your way is obliterated in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's covered by the blood. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You say, yeah, but I'm still thinking about page three on that stack of papers. You know, it happened this many years ago. God's saying he doesn't remember that anymore and you shouldn't either. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Not some unrighteousness, all of it. We have to submit our feelings. We have to submit our thoughts to the word of God, to Christ, to Lamb at the cross. Second Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's not your performance, it's his. It's not your work, it's his. It's what he did for you. Yes, we all stand guilty before the throne of grace. Jesus stands right in front of us and says, I've taken his place, righteous. So we have to get our eyes off of our own sin and shortcomings. We need to get our eyes onto Christ who is our righteousness and then pray that the power of the Holy Spirit grows us in sanctification so that now we can walk in the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah 50, Isaiah 50 verse 9. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Hmm. Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue that accuses you in the judgment will you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me declares the Lord. Who has the final word? The religious leaders? The enemy? Your boss? Your neighbor? Some person in your life? Do they have the final word? No, God has the final word over your life and over my life. We don't deserve salvation. We can't earn our righteousness. We deserve to be charged guilty and condemned. God says righteous. That's my child. Forgiven. Justified. Last two verses. Actually, let's read the end of the chapter. Verses 35 through 39. The two questions are found, number six and number seven, in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the grand finale. That's the pinnacle. That's the mountain peak. If you are in Christ, if you are are trusting him, you can think of whatever you want in the world. It's not going to get in the way of his love for you. I believe that's what Paul's doing. He's trying to grasp for words. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, death, life, principalities, angels. What is it? What can I think of? Because it doesn't matter. It can't separate you from God's love. That's how much Christ loves you. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the measure of his love towards those who fear him. Where, does the, where do the heavens end? It's an eternal love that he has for his children. If you're in Christ Jesus, cling to the promises. Cling to the cross. Never doubt if God's for you. Never doubt if God loves you. And if you have sin in your life and you're struggling and you're saying, yeah, but I've done this, then throw it at the foot of the cross. And God says, I remember it no more. So you shouldn't remember it either. Remember that God's for you and that he loves you and you can be victorious in all your suffering.